Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the 49ers Plus Podcast. I'm your host, Al Moriello, and today we're going to be discussing the full breakdown, reactions, and observations of the 49ers' 19-12 slugfest win over Dallas. This is a big week as we head into championship game weekend, so this is going to be a big podcast. It's going to be broken up into three parts. The first part of the 49ers' And Cowboys Reaction is going to be releasing today, Tuesday, the 24th. The plus section is going to be divided into two. So tomorrow, Wednesday, the 25th, we're going to be talking about DC Comics crisis events. I'm going to be reviewing the TV shows Willow and Witcher Blood Origin and discuss how much the NFL is, how much Amazon, excuse me, and YouTube are paying for the NFL in addition to what CBS and Fox NBC and ESPN are paying. And finally, on Thursday, the 26th, I'll be breaking down both AFC and NFC championship games. So a lot of lot to get to, which means got to get to it in a couple days. But as far as 49er stuff, let's get right into it. Let's talk Niners. And before we start, I actually just want to thank everybody that's out there listening especially to last week's podcast. That was the highest listened to podcast ever. And it was, we had more than 25%, we had 25% more listeners than the previous high. So not sure if those numbers are going to continue. Hopefully they steadily grow, but just want to, again, thank everybody out there for listening and looking at the analytics last week was a high um, for the podcast. But let's get into the uh, Niners and Cowboys divisional game. As always, we start with the stats. Total offense, 312 to 282 yards. San Fran on top. San Francisco had 5 minutes and 30 seconds more time of possession. Turnovers, 2 for Dallas, 1 for the 49ers. And first downs, San Fran with the edge, 21 to 15. Passing, Brock Purdy, 19 of 29, 214 yards. And two sacks, Dak Prescott, 23 of 37, 206 yards, one touchdown, two interceptions, and he was sacked once. Rushing, Elijah Mitchell, 14 of 5 for 51 yards, McCaffrey, 10 for 35, Debo, 4 for 11, Zeke for the Cowboys, went 10 for 26, Dak, 4 for 22, and Tony Pollard, before his injury, 6 for 22. Overall, rushing, Dallas, 22 rushes for 76 yards. San Francisco, 32 for 113 and a touchdown. George Kittle receiving 5 for 95. Debo, 4 for 45. McCaffrey, 6 for 22. For the Cowboys, CeeDee Lamb led the way. 10 for 117. Tight end Dalton Schultz, 5 for 27. And receiver Noah Brown, 2 for 21. Grades per pro football focus. Top five on offense, tight end Charlie Warner. That was only nine snaps. Guard Spencer Burford, tight end George Kittle. Fullback Kyle Juszczyk and receiver Jawan Jennings. On defense, linebacker Aziz Alshire. Cornerback Jimmy Ward. Linebacker Fred Warner. Defensive end Nick Bosa. And safety Talanoa Hufunga. Turnovers, two interceptions by Prescott. One by Diamador Lenore. Another by Fred Warner. And the Lone 49er turnover was a punt fumble by Ray Ray McLeod. So now my overall thoughts on the game. 
you know, this felt like it was a game, forget the 90s, it felt like it was a game from the 1980s. Offense was hard to come by. Defenses were playing at a very high level, and every yard was hard fought. When it comes to playoff games, you know, when these teams met for three straight NFC Championship games in the 90s, 92, 93, and 94, both teams had great teams offensively and defensively, but there was a lot more scoring than we saw the 31 combined points this past Sunday. The regular, I'm going to go back to the 1994 regular season game between San Francisco and Dallas. It was a game in San Francisco. San Francisco won that game 21 to 14, and that game helped clinch home field advantage for the 49ers throughout the playoffs. Watching that game and remembering that game, this recent game between the two teams felt a lot like that. Both teams couldn't really get more uh, going, a lot going on offense. Dallas had costly turnovers at bad times in 94. It was Troy Aikman being intercepted twice by Merton Hanks, I believe both in the red zone. This year, this season, Dak Prescott was intercepted twice by the 49ers, once in the red zone, once deep in their own end. And even last year's game um, was a low-scoring game you know, between, between the two teams. It was under 40. This was a 31-point game, all defense all the time. And you saw from the get-go what Dallas's game plan was, at least defensively led by defensive coordinator Dan Quinn. And the idea was... Let's take away the 49er running game and make Brock Purdy beat them. If you watch the game, you saw that Dallas defenders, you always saw eight, nine, sometimes 10 defenders on the screen. Now, maybe you don't count cornerbacks, so let's say eight or nine. You never really saw a safety back deep. You saw four linemen, three linebackers, and maybe even a corner that was up in that five-yard box between the line of scrimmage and where maybe linebackers were lined up, and they were daring Brock Purdy to beat them. They they took San Francisco's ground game away almost completely in the first half. San Fran was running the ball. Not a lot of volume, not very productive with the runs that they were making. And I guess in some ways, Coach Kyle Shanahan's approach was, we are going to pass in the first half, to set up the run in the second half. Now, I don't know if that was by design going in with the game plan or necessity because of how well Dallas was defending the run. But in the first half, the run wasn't there. Kudos to Dallas. Kudos to the coaching staff. In the second half, the run started to work. Now, was that because Dallas wore down? Was that because of what San Francisco was doing in the first half? A little bit more passing? Was that because Dallas had two less days off than the 49ers? Remember last week, San Francisco played on Saturday. The Cowboys played, excuse me, on Monday night. Plus they had to travel. So it makes sense in some ways that the Cowboys defense would wear down the later you got into the game because there was less recovery time for the body during the week. And it worked to the four if if that had any bearing, it worked to the 49ers' advantage. But I still think I I just don't like having a game on Monday. 
Again, it's nice as a viewer. You get to see a couple games on Saturday, three games on Sunday, one game on Monday night. But it does a complete disservice to whoever's playing on Monday. You have to give them that Sunday game. You can't have them play Saturday next year. It has to be a Sunday game. And there's always the possibility they're going to be matched up against a team that won on Saturday. I think it leads to a competitive disadvantage. But I hate the Cowboys, so the hell with them. Now, how did this game start? Now, there was an ugly first couple drives by both teams. First three drives, Niners punt, Dallas punt, Niners punt again. Then the Cowboys get the ball deep in their own end, and Dak Prescott throws a bad pass off his back foot late to his number two receiver, Michael Gallup, and Diamador Lenore steps in front, intercepts the ball, and San Francisco gets the ball at the Dallas 27. But the Cowboys' defense stepped up, and kudos to them. They only allowed 13 yards on the seven plays San Francisco had in Dallas territory, had to settle for a Robbie Gold field goal, San Francisco up 3-0. The next drive with that was Dallas's best drive of the day. It was their lone touchdown drive. They went 14 plays, 74 yards in nearly eight minutes, It ended with a four-yard touchdown to tight end Dalton Schultz. The extra point was blocked by Brett Maher. Looking how the way that that kick came out, it probably would have missed anyway. So it's a 6-3 lead for the Cowboys. San Francisco's next drive, productive. 10 plays, 46 yards, mixed the run and pass, although the run wasn't that effective. Took 5 minutes and 42 seconds off the clock. Had to settle for a Robbie Gold field goal from 47 yards. It's a 6-6 game. Now, the game, in a way, essentially turned on the next Cowboys drive. They had a nice 7-play drive, 47 yards. Got it to the San Francisco 18, and with a minute 24 left, this is the play after Tony Pollard, the running back for the Cowboys, got hurt and was knocked out for the game, which which later was diagnosed as a high ankle sprain, plus he broke his leg. So it's second down and two. After Pollard's eight-yard gain, Dak throws a really ill-advised pass to CeeDee Lamb, double coverage that Jimmy Ward, who's had safety Jimmy Ward, who's had issues creating turnovers, the ball goes through his hands, Pops up to Fred Warner, who's behind the play, makes the interception, returns it to the San Francisco 28-yard line. Dodged a bullet. Because Dallas probably would have gotten points there, right? Either a touchdown or maybe a Brett Maher field goal if they decided to do something. So it could have been 9-6 or 13-6 going into the half. And remember, Dallas got the ball to start the second half. San Francisco gets the ball with a little over a minute to go at their own 28. Kyle Shanahan, a little bit curious with how he was managing the clock on this drive. He wasted time after some gains to the 49 or 40 yard line, had two timeouts left, took the first timeout left with the ball around the 40, then took the next timeout when they got to around the 47 or 48, took his second timeout, third down, let about 20, 25 seconds wind off the clock to 30 seconds left in the half. Now, I can understand the rationale, because, and Greg Olson said it on the broadcast, 
he wanted to make sure that he was giving Dallas little to no time left to do anything um, as a last drive in the half. But I don't think he realized Dallas only had one timeout. And you were under you were under a minute anyway. So if they didn't convert on this third down with, with save and 45 seconds left, Wisnowski would have punted. You would have think that he would have pinned them within in the 20 or 15 yard line. So Dallas would get the ball with under 40 seconds to go in one timeout. Maybe they would have gotten conservative because Dak just threw two interceptions. So I think they could have played with a little bit more time and not wasted some time. Would it have been enough to get in the end zone? Probably not. But how it worked out, worked out to perfection. On third down, Purdy hit Jennings on a crossing route for 21 yards to the Dallas 32. Now there's 12 seconds to go. The next two plays should have been, and we've seen the Niners do this before, especially with Garoppolo quarterback, when you're trying to waste time at the end of the half when you have no timeouts left, but you're in scoring position. It should have been Purdy hiking the ball, taking one steps, or just staying flat foot and throw it out of bounds near a receiver. Did it the first time, but he took six seconds. That that should not be a six-second play. It should be a three-second play, or four at the most. The next play, Purdy was looking downfield, indecisive, throws it out of bounds to his right, which is a farther throw, lucky to get it out of bounds with one second left. Robbie Gold connects on a 50-yard field goal. It's 9-6 San Francisco at the half. Now, going back to this Tony Pollard injury, it's unfortunate that any player gets hurt in a big game like this, right? Like, not I don't want to say that we want to see players at their best and everyone's 100%. You take any advantage that you can get. And it wasn't a dirty play by Ward, even though some people were complaining about it. It was not a horse-collar tackle. He did not get inside the jersey and yank him down. He tackled him, and you see this, and you see injuries when this happens a lot, and then he falls, and him falling with his body weight trapped Pollard's leg underneath him, causing the sprained ankle and the break. That's not a flag. People were complaining about it after the fact. Cowboys fans and non-Cowboy fans are like, what are you going to do there? It's a tackle, and by Ward tackling him that way, he preserved Dallas not getting the first down because he pulled him backwards. Versus forward momentum. I'm not sure who out there is aware of this, but in the week leading up to the game, there was a Dallas sports radio host that jokingly hoped that Christian McCaffrey would get injured during or before the game. Again, jokingly. You know, we said something like, oh, you know, it'd be nice for an injury, hoping for like a hamstring, you know, something like that, nothing major. Oops. Again, karma, you don't want to anger the football gods by saying something like that. And for any Cowboy fans that are complaining or saying, well, if we had Pollard, we would have won that game. Maybe you'll never know. But what I do know is it's easier for a third string running back to step in and perform than a third string quarterback. And the Niners are playing with Brock Purdy, everybody. Yes, he's won seven in a row. But he's still a more inexperienced quarterback than Dak Prescott. Much fewer snaps. Second playoff game only ever. And I know he's playing well, but the Niners are still playing with the third-string quarterback, folks. I'm not worried about who got hurt or whatever for the Cowboys. The Niners, albeit he's playing well, are playing with their third-string quarterback.
So now let's look at the second half. Dallas goes three and out. Punt, punts. Ray Ray McLeod fumbles. Of course he does, because why wouldn't they want to give themselves any breathing room? Dallas recovers at the 21. The Niners defense stands up, and they, they settle for a field goal, 9-9. Now the teams after that go back and forth trading punts. San Francisco gets the ball at their nine-yard line, goes on their best drive of the day. I think I don't know if someone said it was the longest drive in 49ers postseason history. Ten plays, 91 yards, six minutes, capped off by a two-yard run by Christian McCaffrey. This is the drive where the 49ers running game, I don't want to say took start started taking control, but showed life. Seven runs, two passes, the big pass being the 30-yard bobbling catch to George Kittle to get the ball to the Cowboys' 49-yard line. And re-watching this play and, and, and listening to analysts break it down, George Kittle was not part of the route. This is a play where Brock Purdy booted, bootlegged left, looked to throw downfield, Either his first, second, or third primary reads were all covered. Kittle was not part of the route. He's, it became a scramble drill. He saw that Purdy had nowhere to go, recognized that he had a defensive lineman on him, and just broke up field. Not going to say Purdy threw a perfect pass, but a good enough pass for Kittle to extend his arm, bobble it, bobble it back to him, off his helmet, extend, and make the catch. I really thought... Cornerback, I think it was Stefan um, Trayvon Diggs, excuse me, would have had a play on maybe not intercepting it, but knocking the ball away from Kittle. But when you watch the replay, he made a business decision. He makes a lot of these business decisions to avoid contact. I think he could have broken up that pass if he made contact with Kittle, but he didn't. 49er ball at the Dallas 49-yard line, drives down the field takes a 16-9 lead. Now, on the ensuing kickoff, Robbie Gold saves a touchdown by receiver Turp, uh, the, the returner, Turpin, had a nice alley. Robbie Gold basically gets in his way and backs into the kick returner. Then Janoris Jenkins helps kind of clean it up, tackles him around midfield, and that leads to a Cowboy field goal to make it 16-12. It could have been a tie game, assuming Brett Maher makes the extra point, of course. Kudos to Robbie Gold for just being in the right place at the right time. And that um, another bigger receiver or returner would have maybe bounced off of Robbie Gold and, and maybe cut it back left and scored. Turpin is, I think, 160 pounds. He weighs less than Robbie Gold. So just... The physics of that interaction, the force of him making contact with someone who weighs probably 30, 35 pounds more than him, sent him to the ground. So maybe if he ate an extra burger or two or, or pasta before the game, it wouldn't have mattered. But again, lucky break by San Francisco. Now with 11 minutes and three seconds to go in the fourth, San Francisco gets the ball back and they didn't necessarily salt the game away. But they went in on a, let's run the ball down your throats, eat up time, get some points, drive. And this is a 16-12 to 12 game. They go 13 plays, 64 yards in 8 minutes 
eight rushes, only four passes. Most of the rushes were to Elijah Mitchell. They kick a 28-yard field goal, 19-12 San Francisco. Dallas gets the ball back with a little over two minutes and and or maybe a little over three minutes. And Dallas goes three and out. This is where you pay Dak Prescott that amount of money. This is where he needs to put the team on his shoulders and get points. I mean, and not even points, needs to get a touchdown. This is where he has to take control of the game after you lost one of your best offensive threats in Tony Pollard. You're not going to be running the ball. I mean, you could run the ball. It's a one-drive game. And if you score with no time remaining, then you have the choice of kicking an extra point or going for two for the win. So you can mix the run in there. It doesn't have to be all Dak all the time, but it's got to be mainly Dak. And what do they do? Three and out. Punts to San Francisco. Raymond McLeod receives it with 2.05 left. Dallas still has all three of their timeouts. I think a really smart thing... Kyle Shanahan did coming out of the two minute warning was throw uh, coming out of the punt with two Oh five to go was throwing the ball. Cause it's two Oh five. If you hand the ball off, it's going to either be taken to the two minute warning or Dallas is going to take a timeout with, with two Oh one remaining throwing the ball will eat up five seconds. And uh, maybe Dallas wasn't looking for it, but smart play understanding how much time was left before the two minute warning 16-yard pass play to Kittle. Ball is now at the 42-yard line. Two-minute warning. Coming out of it, Elijah Mitchell runs for a yard. Dallas takes their first timeout. Then sweeps right for 13 yards, or takes their second timeout, rather. Sweeps right for 13 yards, but goes out of bounds at the Dallas 44. So now there's a minute 53 left. Eli Mitchell goes out of bounds. Dallas only has one timeout. If Mitchell slides... The game is either over or Dallas will only get the ball back punt-wise with maybe 10 or 15 seconds left. Instead, San Francisco bleeds the clock. Dallas uses their remaining timeout to 51 seconds. It's punted. Fair caught by Turpin at the 6-yard line. I don't know why he did that. Once you know you're inside the 10 and you don't have a chance at a return, get away from it. Give, give your team the ball at the 25. Another bad decision and then tight end Dalton Schultz on this final drive you know makes a couple mistakes one on one of the on one of the first possession or catches he makes from Dak Prescott he gets bumped out of bounds by cornerback Traverius Ward but gets bumped enough that he goes backwards and when you go backwards out of bounds the clock does not stop he's a bigger guy than Traverius Ward he's got to either run him over or, or dive out of bounds something bad awareness and even worse awareness on the next play 15 yard completion to Schultz, but he lazily catches the ball. He wasn't even all that close to the sideline, gets his right foot down, takes a big step with his left foot, left foot way out of bounds, not a catch. And then we all know with five seconds left, they they were in hail Mary range. Then now you're at the 24 yard line. The last play, they they line up Ezekiel Elliott, the running back at center. They have offensive linemen lined up as receivers to the left and right. Complete joke. Dak throws to, to Turpin, tackled immediately by Jimmy Ward. Game's over. Now, is there really a good play? Five seconds left and you're at your own 24? No. But I can't imagine drawing up a worse, more stupid-looking play 
than that. Niners win 19-12. Nail-biter, just like last year. Just like last year, Cowboys get it with time to go. The Cowboys got it twice this time within one score. Before the two-minute warning, three and out. And granted, 51 seconds left, own six-yard line, no timeouts. You're not really going to do much with it other than maybe a, a, a pass interference play. So what are my big takeaways from this game? My biggest one, or, or one of the ones, and, and no one on ESPN or NFL Network or anywhere else is listening to this podcast, but let's not be prisoners of the moment. What happens one week against one inferior team doesn't have much bearing on what's going to happen next week against a better team. The 49ers are not the Buccaneers, Cowboys, and the, and the Seahawks are not the Cowboys, San Francisco. San Fran blew out the Seahawks in the wildcard round in the second half, and the Cowboys blew out an offensively inferior and defensively mediocre Buccaneers team. And what did that... And, and that happens later, right? So San Fran played on Saturday. Dallas played on Monday. What's the more recent thing that's in the public consciousness? Oh, the Cowboys. Dak Prescott looked good. Best game of his career. Dallas, they're, they're going to beat San Francisco. There's so, more people that were picking Dallas than San Francisco generally. San Fran was a, what, a two and a half point favorite or four point favorite, whatever it closed at. The ESPN football power index had the Cowboys at a 53% chance of winning that game. For a team that finished three and two, the Cowboys, the end of the regular season, got smoked by a third round quarterback rookie. In Washington, lost 26-6 to when that game was still, they were still alive to win the division and possibly get home field advantage if, if the 49ers lost against a team that won 10 or 11 straight at that point. Star on the helmet syndrome. Everybody wants the Cowboys to be better than they are, and they're just not, people. They're just not. They'll look good against crap teams. And they'll also look bad against crap teams. They struggled with the Texans, got blown out by the Redskins, lost to the Jaguars in overtime, beat the Eagles end of the season with Gardner Minshew, not Jalen Hurts, struggled with a Titans team who was sitting everybody for that game until they won by 14 and pulled away in the fourth quarter. They will tease you. There's a reason why their main color is blue. They give you the equivalent of football blue balls. They're a perpetual tease. Are they talented? Yes. Are they a top 10 team? Yes. Are they good enough, well-coached enough, and have a good enough ownership group to be a top four team? No. And that's why they haven't been in the top four in the last 27 years. And this is my warning for the Chiefs, for the Bengals, for the Niners and the Eagles. Hey, Eagles, the Niners aren't the Giants. Hey, Niners, the Eagles aren't the Cowboys. Eagles are better. Hey, Chiefs, the Bengals aren't the Jaguars. And hey, Bengals, the Chiefs are not the Bills, even though you've won three in a row. So knee-jerk reactions, I know it has to happen. Hot take, hot take to, to get people watching all these NFL shows, podcasts, etc. Look at the body of work especially the most recent body work, that tells you who, who you are as a team. 
Dallas, kudos to them run defense. Going into this game, they were the 22nd ranked team against the run. They shut it down in the first half. They said, hey, Brock Purdy, we're going to put this game on you until you can get the running game going. And you know what he did? He made the plays that were there. He made the plays that were not there, meaning he didn't throw two interceptions, Dak Prescott. He didn't hurt his team. He didn't cost his team potential points. He kept them in it, made smart plays, always kept them within a score. Granted, 3-0 Niners, 6-3 Dallas, 6-6. Once it was 6-6, the Niners never trailed again. Then they went up 9-6, 9-9-16. Purdy did not cost them the game. Dak Prescott did not solely cost them the game, but boy, was he the biggest contributor to the Dallas Cowboys looting that, losing that game. During the regular season, the 49ers gave up an average of 78 rushing yards a game. They gave up 76 to Dallas. When, when you are a top three offense or defense, and you can play to your yearly average or better, you have a really good chance of winning that game. Over, uh, during the regular season, San Francisco gave up 223 passing yards per game. They gave up 206 to Dallas. So in sum, they gave up less yards against the Cowboys, a top three scoring offense, than what the sum was of the total yardage allowed per game during the regular season. Dak Prescott is the black Kirk Cousins. Or if that sounds harsh to your ears, which it shouldn't, Kirk Cousins is the white Dak Prescott. They're good for you in fantasy. They'll put up points. They'll put up numbers. Kirk Cousins is a lot more durable than Dak Prescott is. And Dak's injuries were, were a lot had to do with bad luck. But Kirk Cousins is a durable quarterback, but he's also enduring of being garbage when it counts. They're good. They are two good quarterbacks when it doesn't matter. And I may draft one of them or possibly both of them on whatever fantasy football teams um, I have next year. But thankfully, the fantasy football playoffs are week 15, 16, and 17. Still the regular season. So they'll still perform. But garbage. Hopefully there's no primetime games when I'm playing in the playoffs if I'm in with them. But they are not good when it matters. Purdy didn't throw a touchdown. Breaks his streak of six straight games. Um, or seven. Can't remember how many it's been. But he also didn't throw an interception. He completed passes on 60, 65% of his passes were completed. If you take away the two throws at the end of the half that he threw away out of bounds, and let's just say they kneeled or they, well, they couldn't kneel. They clocked it. He completed 70% of his passes against the Cowboy defense. And all I kept hearing was how good they are against the pass, how hard they're going to make it. They have a better pass rush statistically than the 49ers. They did get to him twice. They did. Once in the first half, once in the second half. But the Niners line played better run defense and pass defense in the second half versus the first half. Purdy had some almost interceptions. He gave Ayuk an opportunity at a jump ball inside the five. That was a little dicey. And then later on in the game, there was... Uh, a play-action in-breaking route that he threw to Ayuk that got batted off of a Cowboys defensive lineman's helmet and was behind 
Ayuk and went through Diggs' hands. Diggs, I mean, that, that was all reaction. He wasn't expecting that to happen. Um, you know, horseshoes and hand grenades, right? Almost. Horseshoes and hand grenades. He did not cost the 49ers points. And when they were in scoring range, um, he played. And, and you heard it on the telecast. They've been very aggressive with Purdy. They were a little bit more conservative with him this week because of the type of game that they thought it was going to, Shanahan thought it was going to be a ground and pound game. So only two sacks against the Cowboys. As much hype as the 49ers defensive line gets, I said this last week, it's really driven by Nick Bosa. The 49ers during the course of the regular season had 45 sacks. The Cowboys had 55, so a better pass-rushing team. Dallas is number two in the league in sacks. Next up is the Eagles, number one. Dallas had 55 sacks in the regular season. I'm sorry, Dallas did, yes. Philadelphia, 70. And we're going to dive into this more on Thursday. Something to keep in mind. And lastly, what's one of the main takeaways for all of us? San Francisco got 30 rushes in, specifically 32. 32 rushes for 113 yards and one touchdown. When the Niners go over 30 rushing yards, good things will happen. And like, but like I said, next up is the Philadelphia Eagles, the number one seed in the NFC, the team that a lot has said has been the best team for a lot of the season. They stumble down the stretch, but that generally happens when your starting quarterback and other players are hurt. They didn't look great the last week against the Giants. Had the bye week, got healthy, obliterated the Giants in the wild card game. We will dive more into this on Thursday. So that concludes our 49ers and Cowboys recap section of the podcast. Be sure to be back here tomorrow, Wednesday the 25th, plus section number one. We're going to be talking about DC Comics and their crisis events. There is a fun and funny reason why I'm bringing this up now. I'm going to review the TV series Willow on Disney+, Plus, Witcher Blood Origin on Netflix, and I'm going to share with you guys how much all of these broadcast companies are paying for rights to distribute NFL games and how... A couple of these companies are getting ripped off. And then on Thursday, the 26th, there will be break, full breakdowns of the AFC and NFC championship games, making picks. Again, want to thank everybody for listening. I'm hoping you guys come back on Wednesday or Thursday. And when I post to Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn, I will put, for those of you that have listened to the first section, I will put in timestamps for at what minute and second time point does plus section one start? And then for Thursday, what time point does plus section two start? Just so if you want to listen more, you can jump ahead accurately versus, again, listening to my monotone voice. So that's it for today. More to come Wednesday and Thursday. Hope that you all come back for it. Thank you. It's plus time. Welcome back, everyone. Part one of our plus section and for the time being, we're going to take a break from the NFL and sports and going to talk some comic books. Uh, I've been collecting for 
gosh, way too long. Let's say um, 30 years have way too many long boxes of, of comic books. Um, spend a lot less money per month now than I did 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. Um, but what I am a big fan of are, you know, a big crossover events or cosmic events, um, both for DC Comics and uh, for Marvel Comics. And it usually happens a little bit more for for DC Comics. Um, and But the reason why I'm actually bringing up this We'll, talk, we'll title it this DC crisis event storylines throughout the years is last week I actually had, um, you know, a yearly checkup, annual physical, you know, blood work, exam, you know, the whole thing. And while the female doctor was asking me to cough, you know, entirely too many times with this weird wry smile on her face. I had nothing better to do than to look around the room, and on the back of the exam room door, I noticed um, a poster about, um, you know, getting a colonoscopy. And I'm I'm getting close to that age where that might be. I know it's not an annual thing where I'm going to need my first exam. And the poster had, you know, three different options, whether, you know, a normal colonoscopy, um, Colaguard, which is putting a fecal sample in a box and either mailing it somewhere or uh, bringing it to your doctor's office. And there was some, there was a third one. There was something else, and I, I can't recall what it was. A lot of people I know, you know, that are you know in the you know forty five fifty plus age group are you know scared of colonoscopies, timid about it. Like I've always said, if you knock me out, you can do whatever you want. Like I would love, like if you have to pull a wisdom tooth or a root canal, knock me out. Any, I know people that have been awake for like major surgeries um, and were just like locally anesthetized, like say from the waist down or the, the torso down. That's ridiculous. Like, again, do, it, do whatever you want to me within the legal realm. If you knock me out and then I just wake up and, and then that's totally fine. But, you know, colonoscopy, let's, before we get into the comic book stuff, doesn't sound like a bad, you know, deal for me. You know, I, before you take have one, you have to, you know, drink something that flushes out the system, or maybe nowadays it's a pill that flushes out the system. Now that's cool for me because that means I'm in the bathroom more. So that's more time away from the kids and the wife, which means more time to read, more time to listen to an audiobook, or more time to play games on my mobile phone. I'm all about that. You know, you just, you give me more and it's a, it's legit time. It's like, I'm not avoiding you. Like I, I got to crap my brains out, you know, four five, six times that night. Once you drink or take that pill, like, like I welcome that. That's fine. So what this poster made me think of is how, how with a colonoscopy or, or whatever you got to, you have to flush out the system. You got to clean everything out. You're basically hitting reset. Emptying everything out in there so doctors can go in and make sure, you know, there's there's nothing, you know, dangerous going on, cancer, etc. And it made me think how DC Comics, over the past 37 years, has essentially had to give themselves an enema or a colonoscopy every couple years because their continuity of stories got so jumbled that they needed to hit the reset button and start from a clean slate. And really the timing of this is I just finished reading the, the most recent version of this reset called Crisis on Infinite Earths. 
It was a seven-part series, I believe. And I read the last issue the day before I went for the exam, then the colonoscopy reference and all this stuff. So I went back and researched, you know, and I've, I've read all of these. All of the times since 1985, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, there's been eight instances where DC Comics had to hit a hard reset on their storytelling continuity. And I'm just going to kind of go through them for everybody briefly, because I don't want to bore you too much. The first time this happened was in 1985, and it's considered it was a 12-part classic, and it was what set the template for DC Comics doing this in the um, future and, and Marvel Comics when they've done it, which they don't do it nearly as much as DC. It's called Crisis on Infinite Earths. And basically what this did was DC Comics recognized that there was more than one universe, more than one Earth out there, and they wanted to reconcile how... On one planet, there is uh, a Justice League, you know, the Superman, Batman, Green Lantern, Aquaman, Martian Manhunter, Wonder Woman, whoever it may be. But then on another Earth, there's a Justice Society of America who are older versions of these heroes. There's an older Green Lantern, an older Flash, a different type of Wonder Woman. And these are people that have stayed young for however long DC Comics has been around, I think in the 40s. You're talking at that time, 40 plus years of storytelling, and they're trying to explain why these other heroes exist, why they're staying young. And this entire story was revolving around this humongous bad guy called the Anti-Monitor, wanted to destroy, and what it's called, when you have multiple Earths and multiple universes, it's called the Multiverse. And the heroes and villains kind of band together to stop their worlds from collapsing. And for the most part, they did do that. And it reset the con they re it re helped reset 40 years of continuity. One of the big things that came out of that was um, Supergirl died. Um, there were any, they wound up obviously on, on one of the earths and they wound up bringing her back. But that was the first time that they said, okay, too much stuff going on in DC comics. Let's make it more organized. And that lasted nine years. 1994 was around the, I don't forget it was 93, 94, but Superman died, got killed by Doomsday. Batman's back was broken by the villain Bane, who was in one of the Batman movies from uh, 12 years ago, The Dark Knight Rises. Um, and they, they had other stuff going on, and it really revolved around, um, and this was called, I'm sorry, Zero Hour Crisis in Time, and it revolved around Hal Jordan, who's Green Lantern, was going through his own stuff, and he couldn't prevent his home city of Coast City, which is on the West Coast. One interesting thing about DC Comics, and for those of you who don't know, DC Comics stands for Detective Comics, and it started out as two basic series of comics. Detective Comics came first, and those were Batman comics. And then Action Comics came next, and those were Superman comics. From those two heroes then spawned, you know, Wonder Woman and Green Lantern and other Flash, other other heroes that are staples now for, for DC. But this Green Lantern, Hal Jordan, lost it when he couldn't save his family, his friends, when Coast City was destroyed by some alien invasion. He went nuts and he, he wound up killing other Green Lantern characters who are powered by a green ring. Um... That green ring has a, a, it's like a battery. It has a limited charge, but it gives them powers to fly, to create things out of their ring, like a big fist or a building. And it's based on their, how strong their willpower is. 
I guess his will, Hal Jordan's willpower was very strong because he was so mad and upset about what happened that he wound up killing a handful of Green Lanterns, or it might have been the entire Green Lantern Corps, I don't remember. But I do remember one of the comics, and it's one of my favorite covers from the 90s with, with Hal Jordan looking crazy, and he's showing his, his hands up to the, to the audience, and he has a ring on every finger. And that made him super powerful, and that gave him the ability in this zero-hour to want to recreate the universe as he saw fit and to bring back his home home city of Coast City. And he took on the name of Parallax. And then the heroes had to band together to defeat him, etc. But that, that did wind up resetting again, explaining why some heroes exist. They used to exist on... You know, Earth Zero was the main Earth, and there was Earth One, Earth Two, Earth Prime. Earth. So they they tried to reorganize heroes and and try to reduce the number of Earths there were. That lasted eleven years. Then there was something called Infinite Crisis, which essentially is considered a direct sequel to 1985's Crisis on Infinite Earths. And what happens in this story ultimately is the Justice League must escape people who were imprisoned during this original crisis from pocket universes because they wanted to replace the main Earth with their version of Earth. And in this story, Superboy from this alternate Earth became super powerful. He became the the main bad guy. He wound up killing Superboy from the main Earth that kind of everybody's following and people ultimately had to like capture him and, and imprison him. Three years, then we have Final Crisis, which is funny. You should never call anything final, when it, even deaths, when it comes to comic books. People just keep coming back. So <laughs> this revolves around the main character, Darkseid. And he's, he's DC Comics' version of Thanos, except for the fact that Darkseid came first, and Jim Starlin, the writer-artist who created Thanos for Marvel Comics, admitted that he based Thanos off of Darkseid. And Darkseid is basically... Superman in the Justice League's main or strongest villain. And essentially, he un- he unleashes his wrath on Earth, kills Batman, kills Martian Manhunter, other players, and it's left to Superman to, to control, and-, and I'll keep using the word reset, reset the damage. What's interesting about this story is it's written by um, a well-respected author, um, Grant Morrison. He's written a bunch of stuff for DC and Marvel Comics. The best way I could describe his writing style is interesting but muddled. Everything that I've read, every episode, every issue of everything I've read by Grant Morrison, I always feel like when I flip from one page to another, there are pages missing. And that's in some in, a, in similar ways has been a complaint of Morrison's writing style. And then when you go on message boards, people say, "Oh, it's it's highbrow writing. You don't get it." And I'm like, "No, no, no, no dude. You're not part of some secret." fan club sect that you're you're in on this big secret and we're not it's just a choppy weird awkward writing style and grant morrison as a writer or even if you're a writer of comic books or writer of books you're still you still answer to an editor an editor will correct if a scene isn't needed if you're changing tense from first person to third person grammar all that good stuff but also the smoothness of a story I guess it's okay, and Grant Morrison sells enough comics that they allow him to do what he wants, but it still boggles my mind how any comic book editor reads through an issue or a run of his and doesn't go, dude, what what the hell happened here? Like, you're jumping around. I don't even know where we are now, and that's the feeling I always got 
Final Crisis was well done, but it did have those instances of me flipping back going, did I, did I miss something? Where the hell are we now in the story? Where's going on? What's going on? So that's three years. And then in 2011, Flashpoint was released. And this basically revolves around the Flash traveling back in time to, to save his mother from dying. But when he does that, you know, it's called the butterfly effect. It changes the DC universe completely. And, and some of the big things that change are Bruce Wayne dot. So Bruce Wayne and his parents, it changed that when they came out of the, the theater in crime alley, little Bruce Wayne got killed. That caused his father to become Batman and it broke his mother and she became the Joker. Then it also caused this war between Aquaman and his folks in Atlantis versus Wonder Woman and, and her tribe of Amazons were basically fighting for the for world domination. And Superman never landed in Kansas. He landed in Metropolis and he was captured and kept by the government um, out of the sun. So when he's finally introduced and released, he looks scrawny and he's trying to understand and learn his powers. And eventually everything is, you know, kind of set right. What's important about this story moving forward, and that was 12 years ago, there's an HBO Max. If anyone has HBO Max and this story sounds inter interesting to you, there is a cartoon on HBO Max called The Flashpoint Paradox that is a pretty faithful adaptation of this six or seven issue comic book run. On top of that, the Flash movie that's coming out later in the year, I think in June, starring head case scumbag Ezra Miller as Flash this comic book series is going to be an inspiration for that. It's already been announced that um, Michael Keaton is returning as Batman from whatever world that Batman universe took place in. Ben Affleck is going to be Batman in it. I think Henry Cavill is re re revisiting his role as Superman. So there, I, it's not going to be an exact pickup, but there's going to be some nods to that. And I would never go see, a, a, I don't think, a Flash movie in theaters, but I would, I think, see this just based on what it's based on. Four years later, there was something called Convergence, which was essentially all of the Earth static that remained. Some supervillain brought them all together on one, or not the Earths, but the heroes from those planets, brought them together onto one like battle world. And he told them that if you guys don't participate in a battle royal, I'm going to destroy all of your Earths. So the heroes do start to fight and the villains even, and then they realize why are we doing this? And they find a way to fight the main bad guy and set everything right. I'm way minimizing kind of what the story is. And in 2016, I think there was like the really, at least recently, the really big reboot where it was a one shot comic book called DC universe rebirth. And this came after a year long initiative called the new 52, where, which I guess we could talk about that in 2000, again, 2015, where DC reset all of the continuity back down to one. So, and they called it the new 52 and they had 52 titles for 52 weeks, even though everything releases basically monthly. And all the heroes were younger. There was a younger Superman, Wonder Woman, Batman, like it's assumed everyone's in their twenties or thirties, but they made it clear that everyone's kind of in their early to mid twenties for whatever reason. Then after a year of that, they, they had to reorganize again. And this DC Universe Rebirth was a one-shot comic book. And it was meant to synthesize and harmonize the, the two big landmarks from 1985 to now, which is 
things are considered in DC post-crisis on Infinite Earth and post-Flashpoint. All the other stuff that happened mattered for a short period of time. I mean, granted, this is all fiction, so we could argue how much it matters ultimately anyway. Um, but in terms of this comic book canon, the original Crisis and Flashpoint are, are considered almost like um, how Christians use time, like B.C. and A.D. That's kind of how people in the D.C. world kind of do this. And it, again, reset things. So that was 2016. And then 2022... What I just finished reading was Dark Crisis on Infinite Earths. And this had an interesting premise. Before this kicked off, the Justice League dies. It gets killed by a villain who's trying to harness all this great darkness energy to, again, like condense the number of worlds and create the world that this villain wants to create. Um, the Justice League never died. They were kind of imprisoned somewhere else. And this evil, this villain was using their superpowers to power his ability to reduce and eliminate some of these worlds. Obviously, <laughs> that didn't work. And what, what really is coming forward from that is Nightwing is a superhero. He, he was actually the first ever Robin in the Batman continuity. And he eventually, in like the mid-80s, started doing his own thing, called himself Nightwing. And he is going to be like no longer a supporting character, but one of the major characters in DC moving forward. He was really the one, even after Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, all the, the heavy hitters came back, he was the one that wound up stopping this villain and great darkness and everything. So a lot's going to be revolving around Nightwing moving forward. One thing I will say about DC Comics, and again, like I said, I, I, don't, I, I don't collect a ton of individual um, comic book titles anymore, but some of these bigger things, I, I like this cosmic stuff. I'm not sure. I mean, I understand why DC does this every so often. One, when you do a big event series like this, it sells books. And I think that's first and foremost. The straightening out the continuity, that's fine. But I don't think there are a sect of DC people, loyal DC readers that, you know, people are getting into arguments about what happened and when, and is this person really dead, et cetera, et cetera. So I understand maybe the need to clean up things every once in a while. DC to me is interesting because it's not as an expansive roster of cat of heroes and teams as Marvel is. So it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a dichotomy one. It's like, well, think it's a smaller universe. So you should be able to keep it, keep your house in order. But two is it, since it's so tight knit, when there is this crisis, generally the same players are involved. And that doesn't mean it makes the stories tired or boring or, or repetitive, but it, it, it's, it's a closer-knit, smaller, I'll use the word more intimate, universe than Marvel. Whenever Marvel does any sort of crossover, not everybody is affected. There could be something with the X-Men, or mul there's actually multiple versions of X-Men, or there's an X-Force, there's obviously the Fantastic Four, there's the Avengers, there's individual heroes like you know Spider-Man, Hulk, you know Thor doing his own thing. So when something happens, it doesn't affect the entire Marvel universe. It's very rare. It's very rare. When it happens, this really affects all of DC, and it has a bigger scope and a cosmic outer space feel, which is kind of what I like. And I'm always looking to read new, fun, out there things. So more than you ever want to know about DC stuff. Um, let's So let's move to TV. I recently just finished the spinoff series on Netflix, Witcher Blood Origin. And now stay with me here for a second. This series, only four episodes, 
was based off a TV series called The Witcher, starring Henry Cavill, who is or was actually Superman most recently. That TV series was based on video games, and those video games were based on a series of books, just to get that all straight. So it was a limited series. The Witcher mothership show has only been on for two seasons, 2019, 2021, and the next season should be coming out this year. Those are usually eight episodes, so this was you know, a four episode limited, limited run type of series did not ha- I'm not a, a big fan or I'm not a, a Witcher fan. I haven't read the books. I have one of the games for switch, Witcher three. It's supposed to be really good. Haven't played it yet just because I, I either forget about it or, or don't have the time, but I've seen the Witcher season one and two and I, and I liked them. They were entertaining. And essentially the story of this is Henry Cavill is a kind of supernatural humanoid or he might be an elf i'm not sure again i'm not a big witcher fan um who turns into this monster hunter and their species i guess is called a witcher by drinking an elixir at least from what i gather from it then he becomes much more powerful not invincible he could still be killed but he's kind of like an anti-hero type of thing that hunts out monsters in this world that are either you know bothering him or people hire him as a bounty hunter um, etc. So this blood origin show to me, like I watched it, I was entertained by four episodes. It didn't, did not need to be made. It is based on one of the books. So it's not like it was a complete money grab of like, Hey, Witcher's popular. Let's do something else on our own. It is loosely based on one of the books and it's meant to give an origin story for the world, the literal earth that this Witcher story takes place on. And for how the Witchers as a species came to be. So it takes place about more than a thousand years before the Witcher series with Henry Cavill. And it follows like seven outcast individuals. There's elves, there's mages, magicians, and a dwarf. And they come together because they want to overthrow um, an elven empress because she is becoming maniacal and dividing the elven clans. And, they, and these people want to overthrow her and they want to re- reunite the, the elven clans. So essentially out of these characters, one of the main characters was the elven empress who was at that point a princess. Like they were lovers and she wanted to become the empress. So she killed her brother who was going to be the emperor. And then this her lover character wound up getting banished. And now this empress is power hungry and she doesn't just want to control her world. She wants to control other worlds. So she's having her mages, her, her wizards open gateways to other worlds and try to take control of them. Um, the empress isn't very popular. She has a big monster protecting her and her palace. So when the, when these outcasts realize that one of them volunteers to transform himself into a monster to fight this monster. And essentially that, how that happens was <laughs> they wound up killing a monster and one of the mages does like a blood transfusion from the monster to this elf. And we're not talking like small elves. We're talking like big, as big as Henry Cavill, you know, type of elves. He essentially becomes like the first witcher and he can't control when he's going to, you know, almost like the Hulk when he gets angry, he gets more powerful and he, he turns like pale, etc. Um, essentially they break into the palace, they kill the empress, they kill this big monster, the witcher character does, and he can't control himself. So he, he asks one of the characters to kill him because he just doesn't want to live that way. Fine. And then finally the, the empress's mages 
are successful in winding up opening portals to other worlds, but it doesn't go right. So those, you know, rips in, in space and time start to fall away and the other worlds that are out there start combining into one. So a world that has humans on it versus a world that has elves on it or dwarfs or monsters or other things are all now combined onto one world, which is the world that the Mothership Witcher series takes place in. Listen, this was fine for four episodes. It was okay. Each episode was about 50 minutes. It isn't a huge time commitment. In some episodes, the special effects look cheap. And I think this is one of those things where if you read the books of, if you read the Witcher books and you're a fan, you're going to, you're going to dislike it because I can see some things even being ne- negligent to the, the, the vaster Witcher universe and lore that weren't great. Like the special effects looking cheap at times, um, the pacing of the stories in some ways, the characters, but it's like fantasy. It was just like, all right, I sat down for 50 minutes and I watched like there was violence and some of the stuff was cool, but Again, if you're like one of those hardcore people, you will find a way to nitpick it to, to death. And on like a Rotten Tomatoes, out of 100, it got like a 15% by the viewers and like a 30% by the critics. So folks don't like this. But again, when you're going into the series and it's about elves and monsters and things transforming, like you're not getting Shakespeare here. Like if you go into it with the right mentality, you'll enjoy it to a certain degree. So that was Netflix. The last thing I want to talk about for this, well, actually, it's not. The second last thing I want to talk about for this portion of the podcast is I finished up the Willow series on Disney+. Plus. It was eight episodes, and I know I might have mentioned this in a podcast or two ago, but just to recap. So this is based on, this is a follow-up to the Willow movie back in 1988, which George Lucas wrote the story treatment for. I know a lot of people associate George Lucas with Star Wars, rightfully so. He wrote the story treatment for Willow. And I know it wasn't that super popular of a movie, but he also wrote the story for Indiana Jones. Like he's responsible for that coming to being written, coming to life. And of course, then Steven Spielberg directed, you know, the the four movies. But the story of Willow, um, the stars are Warwick Davis, who plays the title character. Val Kilmer plays Mad Mardigan. And Joanne Whaley plays Sorsha, who is the daughter of, of the evil queen. And essentially the story is, and it gets right into it when you start the movie. There's a baby born of prophecy who's got a mark on her arm. Um, her name is Alora Dannon, and the prophecy is that she would bring down and kill the evil Queen Bavmorda who is ruling the land. One of the nursemaids smuggles the baby out of the castle, pushes her down a river. The Nelwins, who are the little people in this story, um, find her. Um, and Willow realizes, like, okay, let's take her to the to the town council and see what we what we should do. And the council says, all right, you and a team of people got to bring her back and give her back to the to the big people, like normal sized humans who are called Daikini, because it'll you know it's a bad omen for for their village. Uh, in their travels, they find Val Kilmer, Man Mardigan in a in a cage, and they decide to free him and give the baby to him. Because he's a, he's a big person and, and they feel like they can trust him and want to go home, etc. Um, Val Kilmer loses the baby. Willow gets, it, gets the baby back. Finds like a fairy in a forest. Who, in the, that fairy gives you know, him a magic wand because he's an aspiring sorceress and says, Hey, give this wand to another sorceress on this island and she'll help you defeat the evil Queen Bavmorda. Um, over time, you know, they meet back up with Mad Mardigan. Sorsha, the evil queen's daughter, turns on her mother, you know, falls in love with Val Kilmer's character, and then they they get an army 
And then they fight the, the queen and, and her army and, and Willow winds up, you know, defeating her. And then Sorsha, um, obviously now a good person. She's the queen and Val Kilmer's the king of this kingdom called Tiras Lean. And they're going to raise um, Elora Dannon as a baby and keep her safe. So even though that, that movie came out 35 years ago, this series is set 20 years after the movie. And Sorsha is still the queen of the kingdom of Tiraslene. She has two children, um, and I think they're twins, not identical, because one's female, one's male. Um, Kit and Eric, and Val Kilmer's character, Mad Mardigan, is missing. He doesn't, he doesn't appear in the series at all, maybe, hopefully, in season two. And basically, the story is um, her son, Eric, is kidnapped, and, you know, his sister Kit, her best friends and protector Jade and a grown up Alora Dannon and a few others are on a quest to find him. And Sorsha says, OK, well, you're going to need Willow's help. Go to the Nelwyn village, find him. He's a little reluctant at first, but he helps them on their on their quest to rescue Eric from the little bad guy who's called the crone. And I don't mean little by stature or height. But the main baddie is called the worm, and everyone's a magic user, etc. Um, through the journey, um, Laura Dannon is trying to learn magic and fulfill her prophecy as like she will be the one that will defeat all evil in the land. Um, Kit, the princess, is struggling with why her father made Mardigan left, and the fact that Laura Dannon is the chosen one, even though she's the princess. And there's something that happened in the Willow movie. Willow had a wife and a son and a daughter. In this series, he only has a daughter left, and there's something that happened to the wife and the son that he doesn't say, but he says it's because he wasn't there to protect them, and it's something that he's struggling with. The season ends, eight episodes, tying up most of the story threads. As you might imagine, you know, good wins over evil, but there is a cliffhanger in the last scene of the show, because I, the, the thematic of the show when, when the story opens is it opens a page of the book, it's it, the, the chapter is the name of the episode and then the, the drawing on the page turns to full color and then the show starts. So that book is put away and then you see there's two more books on the shelf insinuating that there would be three seasons. I hope there are, but it hasn't been picked up by Disney yet. Now this show, even though there's some violence um, and some characters die, there isn't like an immense amount of, like there's a lot of blood or gore this is a Disney-fied version of the 1988 movie, even though the same thing, the 1988 movie, there wasn't, wasn't gore. Like, yeah, there's violence because there's armies fighting and there's magic happening and an evil queen, but it's, you're not, you're not watching Braveheart by any means or like Lord of the Rings. But this show, it is family-friendly, but it's, it's extremely lighthearted, sometimes to the point of silly. The main characters outside of Willow are like early 20-somethings. And they have modern personalities. They talk like modern millennials do. And at times, it seems like a show from the CW. You know, like a Buffy the Vampire Slayer or Vampire Diaries or Smallville. Like, it just, it has like a very young vibe and part of that is fine i'm not saying that because i'm outside of the age demographic of the stars but i had a hunch i'm like was was the 1988 movie that silly like i haven't seen it that long ago and granted things when you're younger the humor is more acceptable or you get it 
more so than when you're an adult. Not that you can look back at a, at a kid's show when you're an adult and go, Jesus, what I was thinking, that was, that was so silly. I just went back and watched Willow. Probably had to watch it in, I don't know, at least 10, 15, 20 years. And that, that show did have some episodes of levity and humor. And the main points of humor were Willow, when, when Willow refines the baby, Allura Dannon, when it was stolen from Mad Mardigan, it was stolen by these little pixie characters called brownies. And they're like really small, maybe the size of your finger type of characters. They talk with like French accents. And there's two main characters, two male characters that kind of like bicker, like in like an old married couple. And they're sarcastic. They're really they're really the points of levity and and humor. There are some other there's like a handful of other times where like the Allura Dan and the baby throws up on one of the mean uh, little people that doesn't like Willow or like. But it's not it it is so few and far between. Any one 40 minute episode has much more humor or silliness or. 20-somethings quipping at each other significantly more than the full two-hour movie did. I don't have a problem with that, but at times it was distracting. And I think if moving forward, for if they have a season two or season three, if they were to cut down on that sarcasm, silliness, 20-something mentality, if they cut it in half or cut half of that out, there would still be more than enough of that for people that enjoy it to have it. I think for me, it was a little too much. I mean, they were going on a life or death quest and they were cracking jokes like crazy. Like not to say that they should be scared shitless. And, I, and there's a lot of people out there saying it should have been darker. It should have been darker. No, no, no. I'm not, I'm not a proponent of that. This is on Disney+. Plus. It's based on a series that was a light fantasy series 35 years ago. This does not need to be Lord of the Rings. It does not need to be The Witcher. The Witcher is a dark series. It does not need to be Wheel of Time, even though that wasn't dark. That was just bad. It, it, it's carved its own niche, but I think it's been Disneyfied a little too much, and it, they could rein back on, on this... I'll just call it humor, even though it's more than that. That just feels distracting. People, here's what's actually funny. People had more of an issue with the music. Now, there's been like a modern thing, and I'm not going to say it's, it didn't start with Guardians of the Galaxy, although Guardians of the Galaxy obviously had its own like music thing that director James Gunn did from like the 70s and 80s. And then some other shows started picking this up. Westworld on HBO, even though it wasn't music with lyrics, they would replay the song Paint It Black, um, but just do it on piano. So they're, And they did that with other songs too, where you recognize a song, but it's completely a different melody, a different tone. Again, no vocals, piano, or whatever it may be, which is kind of cool. It's almost like an Easter egg, but it fits the tone of what the story is. Willow, during some scenes of the show, but mainly during the end credits had familiar songs from, say, the 80s. Some of them weren't even familiar to me, whatever, but from 80s, 90s, and 2000s that either they redid, different singer, slowed down the the pace of it. Um, they actually had the, the popular song Black Hole Sun from the, from the mid-90s redone. It was, it was lead vocals were a female. They slowed it down because Soundgarden was, was the original artist of that and the lead singer was a male. That was kind of cool. 
people had a problem with, with, with that stuff. And to think of all the things that you could have a problem with, with this show. And there, again, aside from the silliness, there wasn't much. Cause when you're going in watching a fantasy series, you are literally su- suspending belief. There are no magic wands. There are no dragons. There are no elves. Um, uh, sorceresses, pixies, fairies in the real world. So you're going in, as long as the story stays true to the confines of what they've created, fine. But other than that, like all bets are off. But to to nitpick music and why they're doing and how they changed it, again, to each their own, you know, opinions are like assholes. Everybody has one. Um, Both shows worth watching, Witcher Blood Origin and Willow. I think Willow more so especially if you're, you know, a child of the 80s like me and you're familiar with that uh, story. And I think what the series does a nice job of, I had a lot of issues with the Star Wars sequel movies, Force Awakens, Last Jedi, um, and The Rise of Skywalker, and that'll probably be a separate podcast. But I think this series did a better job of world world building and pushing the narrative forward in an interesting way than the Star Wars sequels did, which isn't saying a lot, but I think it it did a nice significant amount of world building and dealing with lineage, who Alora Dannon is, who Kit is, the child of Sorsha and Mad Mardigan. There's a parallel to Mad Mardigan and Luke. Both were absent from the first movie or the first show. Um, one of the other characters is a descendant from another evil character from the original Willow series, and that character has to figure out what what he or she wants to be. They handled it much better than than the ultimate shit show that was the Star Wars Star Wars trequel sequel trilogy. Excuse me, a lot of S and T words. So, last but not least, for this part of the plus section, plus section part one, just wanted to go over costs for networks, channels, streaming services to broadcast NFL games. So, about a week or two ago. It was announced that the NFL Sunday ticket is going to be moving from DirecTV, which I've had for the past 21, 22 years. It was essentially a gift I gave myself when I graduated college um, because back at the University of Scranton, my buddy Mark and I had a sports talk radio show. We're both Niner fans, and we would go down to the sports bar. I don't even know if we were both 21 at the time. I guess, yeah, I guess we were to get in called Whistles. Where we would watch the Niner game and some other games, and we—I think we survived on just one large order of of nachos, and then of course beer, and just have like you know to talk about the big games of the week. But we wanted to see you know our Niners play. Moving back to New Jersey, I couldn't stomach watching just the Jets and Giants and whatever the heck the Monday night game was, and I guess there was a Sunday night game at the time. So I got Directv, and just a quick story. So you know, over the years. Um, when I, when I first had it, the first 10 or 15 years, I just had, people just had to buy the direct TV package, which was like $300 for the year. Over time, they made it that you have to have at least, you know, a $30 a month base programming package to have direct TV. It didn't apply to me. I was grandfathered in once I, once I got a, um, a high definition TV. And I think that was probably, wasn't probably until I got married. So we're talking about maybe 2009, 2010, they started charging $10 a month for HD service. I'm like, oh, fine HD service, but I still wasn't paying the base package. I was just paying for Sunday ticket, $300 a year because I'm cheap and a moron. So 
you know, football seasons, or at least regular seasons, September to beginning of January, I would get paid, I would pay $10 a month, February, March, April, May, June, July, August for HD service, even though I did not have any programming with DirecTV. And I did that for like a handful of years until I said, wait a second, why am I paying $10 a month? Now, granted, it was like eight months, it was 80 bucks. It was going to make me go broke. No, but my mentality was, why do I have to pay $80 if I don't need to? Called up and like suspended my service from January or February to August. You're allowed to suspend it for six months. So I was saving 60 bucks. Like, yeah, good for me. At some point thereafter, the system didn't recognize that I was grandfathered into not needing a base package. And it was multiple arguments that they weren't going to, bend on. And I was fine. Cause again, I was the idiot that should have just accepted the fact that I was paying $10 a month and I never would have been in, you know, this additional programming mess. When I went to reactivate one year, it's like, no, no, you absolutely need a base package now. I'm like, no, I've been grandfathered in. I don't No, You absolutely do. And what am I going to say? No. And, and cut my nose off to spite my face and, and not be able to watch, you know, 49er games in my home. No. So for the past couple of years, on top of $300 for direct TV, and the $10 a month, which I was for HD service, which I was paying, I was fine with. I had to pay $30 a month for six months for a base programming package. So me trying to save $60 ultimately cost me $180, $30 a month for six months. Sometimes when you have a good thing out there, folks, and it's not costing you that much, and you can, even out of the principle of it, and you can stomach it, just roll with it because you could always be screwed later on. End of story. Going back to the present, so DirecTV lost NFL Sunday ticket. YouTube, which is owned by Google, YouTube TV won it. So starting this September, anybody who wants to watch any NFL game can sign up through YouTube TV. Now, I don't know how this is going to happen. YouTube TV's base cost of like 100 plus channels but no like HBO or Showtime or Stars or Encore, or any of those, is $65 a month. I don't know if it, they're going to handle it like DirecTV did, that you have to have the base YouTube TV programming package, which is $65 a month, to get NFL Sunday ticket. Whether they're still calling that or not, I'm not sure. Now, they could handle NFL Sunday ticket as an a la carte service. So, you don't have to sign up for YouTube TV for $65 a month if you want HBO or HBO Max or Showtime or Encore. You, as long as you have a Google account, you can sign up or you, know, you can have your Google account or if you don't, you sign up for free, you go to YouTube and then you can select which premium stations you want and then you just pay that amount per month for the HBO or Encore, whatever you want, sports packages, NBA League Pass, there's NHL Center Ice, there's something MLB, extra innings, whatever it may be. That's a lot like paying $30 for DirecTV. I can understand why you would want a base package for, for six months, then suspending service. I was okay with paying $65 a month if they're going to make you do it for YouTube TV as an absolute have to happen to get the Sunday ticket. That's That's a lot. I don't think they'll, I don't think they'll do, I, I mean, I shouldn't say it cause I'll, you know, karma. I'm curious to see what they're going to do. All I know is no matter what the cost is, it's like, take my money, 
I want to. I mean, I don't want to pay any more than I have to. I'm happy to watch the 49ers um, at home versus going to a sports bar or anything like that. But DirecTV was paying $2 billion a year for the Sunday ticket package for the past 20 years or 25 years. They lost money on that every year, every single year. And they didn't even put a bid in this year because they knew they were going to get outbid by either Google, Amazon was bidding on, or looked to bid, to bid on it, and Apple TV did bid on it. But Google won with YouTube TV. Google's paying $2.5 billion a year, and I don't, I, I don't know if it's for 10 years or however long, for the Sunday ticket package. Okay, so $2.5 billion to get all the games, or all the games that are not in market, meaning you don't get the Jets or Giants or the Monday night game or the Sunday night game. It's for everything that's outside of your geographical zone. Fox, CBS, and NBC pay $2 billion a year for the right to broadcast NFL games. Amazon, for the Thursday night games, pays $1 billion a year. And ESPN for Monday night football pays $2.7 billion a year for Monday night games. So I know that there's some numbers and acronyms and stations I threw out there with you. Let's break this down because in a lot of ways, this it's not equal and it doesn't make sense. Fox and CBS paying $2 billion a year for games I can kind of understand and get behind. That's similar to what, sun, so what YouTube is paying, $2.5 billion for all the games. NBC, though, is also paying $2 billion a year for one game a week. Now, in a normal week where there's no teams on a buy, there's 16 games. One game's played on Thursday. One game's uh, Amazon. One game's played on Sunday night. That's NBC. One game's played on ESPN, uh, Monday Night Football. So those are three networks. So that means there's 13 games left divvied up between Fox and CBS. And, you know, maybe one week Fox has six games, CBS has seven games, and they flip. Then you get into bye weeks where teams aren't playing. And maybe those weeks Fox and CBS only have five games apiece. So let's use that low number. Fox and CBS, let's just say on average, get five games a week for $2 billion a year. NBC gets one game a week for $2 billion. I don't think the advertising amount that NBC gets, even though it's like a prime time, you know, 8.30 game on a Sunday night, makes up for the five games that are on Fox or CBS because they're still commercials. You're still paying advertising. I don't believe that, that the advertising is five at least five times as much on NBC at night as Fox at 1 o'clock or CBS or same channels at four o'clock. I just don't buy it, especially when 80, 80 to 90% of the highest rated shows in the country every year are NFL games. And it's not just NBC. Now Amazon's in, in the mix. It was NFL Network um, or ESPN. Amazon's paying $1 billion. So, so Amazon's getting the bar. Compared to NBC, Amazon's getting a bargain. $1 billion for a shit slate of games. Historically, the Thursday night games have always been the worst. And the reason is the Thursday, every NFL team has to play on Thursday night. So it starts on, actually, I'm not, I guess it does start on the Thursday night game that kicks off the season before the actual, so that'd be like the September 10th game or whatever. 
Then after that's on NBC. Then after that, there's 16 weeks of games on Amazon. Every team, I think, is required to play a game on Amazon. So that means you have to force the Texans, the Bears, the Jets, the Rams this year, the Colts, the Broncos, all the bad teams or teams that don't draw up shit when it comes to ratings have to at least play on that on the Amazon platform. You know, there was a Jets Jaguars game, boring. There was a Colts Broncos game on there, brutal. A billion dollars. Now, Amazon, if you watch the games on Amazon Prime, there are commercials, so they are offsetting some of the costs there. And I guess it's a little bit of a bargain compared to NBC, but the NBC, I don't again, it's tough to find out what the Amazon ratings are. It's tough to find out any streaming services ratings. But, you know, you could find the ratings for any NBC game. Just take the time and Google it. Uh, Amazon's paying $1 billion. NBC's paying $2 billion. ESPN is paying $2.7 billion for Monday Night Football. And those, those matchups are a shade better than the Thursday Night matchups. And one thing I forgot to mention, so this isn't even considering the cost of, of announcers. So... On Monday Night Football, the announcers are Troy, um, Joe Buck and Troy Aikman. They're not working for free. Amazon is Al Michaels and Kirk Herbstreet. They're both making, all four of those guys are making multi-million dollars a year. And some of them may be making over $10 million a year to broadcast those games. So that has to be factored in. I mean, granted, maybe another $15 million when you're when you're talking about a billion. Does it matter? Probably not. But again, they're just costs that have to be considered Al Michaels has likened, I, I read this in an interview, has likened some of the games he's broadcast to being a used car salesman. I think it was the Colts Broncos game. It was like, I, I don't even know what to tell the audience. Like, this is so bad. Like, I'm not trying to polish up a turd. He didn't say that. I did. But he felt schmarmy, like trying to sell this product. I don't think he cares. He's making money. But two point, let's go ESPN, $2.7 billion dollars. Have there really been great games on Monday Night Football? No. And I guess that does count like the Monday Night Football playoff game between the Cowboys and Buccaneers. Fine. It can't be a bad investment overall. I don't think these stations, these networks are losing money. I know I know for a fact, and it's public knowledge, that DirecTV was on the Sunday ticket. We'll see if YouTube does with Google. They've gotten... Like, Google's got a crap ton of money. They may not care. We'll see what the cost of, of Sunday Ticket is going to be moving forward. If in later in the year I find out, I'll let everybody know on the podcast. It's it's pertinent to me. It might be pertinent to everyone out there now because you don't have to put a satellite dish on your house. And I'm assuming nowadays everybody has internet. So you'll as long as you have internet and as long as you want to sign up for a free Google slash YouTube account, you can watch all the games. It's just a matter of how much it's going to cost. So... That concludes plus section number one for today, Wednesday, January 25th. Tomorrow, the 26th on Thursday, please come back. We will be giving full breakdowns of the AFC and NFC championship games. Bengals at Chiefs, 49ers at Eagles. And if you guys aren't aware, so that the Eagles are a two and a half point favorite. Feels a little low to me. I think it should be about four, four and a half. Because they're basically saying on a neutral field, they're even. And if San Francisco is at home, they would be favored. I think, I think Philly's a little bit of a better team right now. 
And surprisingly or not, the Bengals are a two and a half point favorite at Kansas City. I don't think that has anything to do with the fact that the Bengals have beat them three straight times, but the fact that Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes has a high ankle sprain. So how effective we will he be? And we will dive into all of that tomorrow on Thursday. Again, thank you for listening. Hope you come back Thursday as we conclude the plus section and dive into championship game weekend. Take care. Welcome back to plus section part two. Deep dive into the AFC and NFC championship games. So let's start with the second game on Sunday, 6.30 on CBS, the Cincinnati Bengals at the Kansas City Chiefs. And the Bengals are a two, depending on where you look, two or two and a half point favorite at Kansas City. May have to do with Cincinnati's recent record against the Chiefs but more so Patrick Mahomes' high ankle sprain to his right ankle and hedging on how (coughs) effective or mortal he's going to be. So recap, how did we get here? In the wild card round, the Cincinnati Bengals beat the Ravens 24-17. The game turned on a failed QB sneak by the Ravens inside the one-yard line. It was supposed to be a QB sneak where the QB Tyler Huntley went low and kind of like dug and burrowed his way in. Instead, he tried to jump over the top, extended the ball. It was knocked out and returned for ultimately the game-winning touchdown. Then the following week in the divisional round, the Bengals went to Buffalo and essentially dismantled the Buffalo Bills in the snow and with the DeMar Hamlin energy and motivation feeding that crowd and feeding that team. Cincinnati won 27 to 10. They were up 14, nothing. They never trailed. As for the chiefs, they're the number one seed. They had a buy in the wild card round last week in the division round. They held off a feisty Jacksonville team for a 27 to 20 victory. The Jaguars were down 27 to 17 inside the 15 yard line with about eight minutes to go in the fourth or less perhaps, and their running back Agnew fumbled the ball as he caught a little flare uh, pattern out in the flat. The Chiefs recovered, ate up some of the clock. The Jaguars got the ball back with under two minutes to go, kicked a field goal to make it 27-20, didn't get the onside kick. So like any game, right, turnovers are so critical. Could have been a different game, or a little bit closer, could have been 27-24, if the Jags don't fumble there. And of course, Patrick Mahomes' high ankle sprain in the first quarter made him miss the rest of the first half, but did come back in in the second half. Let's look at the overall stats for teams that are somewhat even, but we're going to see a distinct numerical advantage for the Chiefs when it comes to statistics. Overall offense, KC is number one, Cincinnati number eight. Passing offense, the Chiefs number one, Cincinnati five. Rushing offense, the Chiefs 20, the Bengals 29th. Points Kansas points scored, Kansas City first, Cincinnati seventh. On defense, the Chiefs are the number 11 overall D, Cincinnati 16. Pass defense, Chiefs 18th, Bengals 23rd. Rush defense, Chiefs 8th, Bengals 7th. And points scored, Chiefs are 16th 
or points allowed, rather. Chiefs are 16th, the Bengals are 6th. Turnover differential, there's a pretty big gap here of, of 9 turnovers. Bengals are plus 6, actually 10 if you count 0. The Chiefs are minus 3. And we know who the cast of stars are, but let's just rattle them off. For the Chiefs, quarterback Patrick Mahomes at running back, Isaiah Pacheco and Jarek McKinnon. Tight end, Travis Kelsey. Receivers, Juju Smith-Schuster and Marquez Valdez-Scantling. And the Bengals weaponry, Joe Burrow at quarterback, Joe Mixon and Samaje Pirine at running back. A triplet of receivers, Jamar Chase, T. Higgins and Tyler Boyd and Hayden Hurst at tight end. So, and I'm sure as you're aware, because it's getting a lot of coverage, the Bengals have won the past three games against the Chiefs, both at home in Cincinnati and in Kansas City. And the stats for these games, at least the first two, are close. Last year, 2021, the Bengals won at home 34-31. The Bengals were down 21-7 and 28-14 at two different points in time. Rally to win. The AFC Championship game in 2021 at Kansas City, the the Bengals won 27-24 in overtime. The Chiefs were down 21-3 in the second quarter. Rally to tie allowed only three points in the second half and none in overtime to get the win. And this past year at home, the Bengals won 27-24. Again, they found themselves down 14-3. But this of the three games is the one that they had the clear advantage with stats, yards, time of possession, and turnovers. Now, Cincinnati last week against the Bills had two starting offensive linemen, a guard and a tackle out versus Buffalo. Didn't look like it. They still ran 34 times, 172 yards, and one touchdown against a very good Bills defense. Only allowed one sack and did not cause any turnovers. Now, I mentioned Mahomes, the ankle, is going to be the big deal. Now, everybody's saying the right thing. He's saying, I'm good to go. He was basically good to go on, you know, Monday getting treatment. Of course, I mean, what are they going to say? Unless he broke his ankle or he it was such a severe sprain that he couldn't even put pressure on it, he's going to play. I don't know if it's going to be braced. It'll certainly be taped up tightly to high heaven. But remember, the second half of that Jacksonville game, the Chiefs only scored 10 points. And there were plays where Mahomes, after you know a, a quick five-yard scramble, after throwing the ball, um, after a normal dropback, was hobbling, was hopping on his good foot, his left foot. A high ankle sprain is a multi-week injury. Now, you give, you give Patrick Mahomes credit for playing the AFC Championship game. Of course he's going to play. He's a gamer. He's the best quarterback in the league. And even with an ankle like this, he's probably still a top five quarterback or top three quarterback in the league. And remember, too, going back, I think it might have been the early, the late 2000s, early 2010, the San Diego, San Diego Chargers at the time, quarterback Phillip Rivers played an AFC Championship game at New England with a torn ACL. Had it braced up. Played relatively well. I mean, the the, the uh, Patriots were just a juggernaut at that time, but he did not want to come out. And, I mean, granted, that injury is much more severe than an ankle sprain. Granted, any lower body injury you don't want to take for granted. 
but he played a week after tearing it, and this is a week after a high ankle sprain. All it takes is one tackle. If he gets tackled again the way he did, one bad step, and he could be out the rest of the game. Taping it guarantees nothing, right? Like, it, no matter how much you tape or how much you brace, that ankle, that joint is going to move. He is going to be hampered somewhat. Is it going to take some velocity off the ball, some power, maybe some accuracy? Possibly, but he can compensate. He's got a strong enough arm already. He can throw from different arm angles. Um, He can put more... when, When you throw, anyway, you're throwing off... He's a righty, so he's throwing off of his front foot. He's planting on his back foot, but all the power and the pull through is coming through on his left left foot. So that I think will help somewhat. But again, like any play, any player, it just takes one shot to knock him out. So every time that Mahomes drops back, every time he gets tackled or hobbles, there's going to be that question, uh-oh, did he re-injure? Did he re-aggravate? Can he go? Does he have to come out? Something to keep an eye on. Now, Andy Reid and Eric Bieniemy, the offensive coordinator, they're going to draw up, you know, quick throws, quicker throws. They may lean on the running game more. The stat line against the Jaguars surprised me. They ran the ball 30 times for 144 yards. And I think if you couple that with the fact that the Bengals do not have a, a good pass rush, they only had 30 sacks All year, that's less than two per game, although they did have three sacks on Josh Allen last week in Buffalo. I think the questions that that I'm kind of, you know, looking for, um, for the Chiefs, obviously, how healthy is Mahomes going to be? Can they run the ball? Can that defense and secondary, which isn't a great pass defense secondary, 18th, it's middling, and the Chiefs aren't aren't really better at 23rd. Can they slow down Chase and Higgins and Boyd and in some respects, you know, Hayden Hurst at tight end? I think what, (laughs) I think let's look at the Buffalo example or teams overall, like even Dallas last week against the 49ers. When you get to playoff football, independent of weather, you can be the most high-flying team, the greatest show on turf like the Rams, throwing it 50 times. If you can't run the ball or you are not committed to running the ball, you are you have a good chance of losing that game. So I don't want to say that the magic number is 25 to 30 for the Chiefs, who are not a huge running team, or the Bengals, who should be more of a running team because of Joe Mixon. He is a top 10, top 8 running back. But as it happens so often with when you get a franchise quarterback and a franchise wide receiver like Jamar Chase, and another number one receiver like T. Higgins, and a solid number three who could be a number two on any other team in Tyler Boyd, you're going to want to throw the ball a lot. But there's something to be said for dictating the game, getting tough three, four yards versus an incompletion, slowing the game down and minimizing possessions when you're playing another explosive team. Why give the, the Chiefs 10 possessions when you can maybe give them eight, right? Like it's just two less chances to score. All this being said, I'm not confident in this pick at all. The last two games were 27-24 Cincinnati. Once in Kansas City, once in Cincinnati. This one's in Kansas City again. I'm going to go 27-24 Cincinnati. I'm going to buy into the rhetoric, uncomfortably buy into the rhetoric, that Patrick Mahomes' injury is going to impact the offense enough 
that they can't keep up with the Bengals. I think this is a game where, obviously, 27-24, the Bengals are going to outscore them. But if Cincinnati can keep the Chiefs off balance, again, have some balance running passing. You don't want to have 50 pass attempts and 15 runs. Go down to 40-25, 40-30. And can Cincinnati play, continue to play a clean game against the the Chiefs? They've only had one turnover in all three games combined against Kansas City. They've let up some sacks. They've had a game where they've let up four sacks against the Chiefs. Sacks are minor killers. Turnovers are major killers. I think all that being said, I think Cincinnati is peaking more so now than the Chiefs are, and I will take, with not much confidence, the Bengals by three to advance to the Super Bowl. Would not be shocked at all if the Chiefs win. And one other key to the game, which I should have mentioned this earlier because it's a big one. Bengals, just try to limit Travis Kelsey. Yes, they have other people that can beat them. Travis Kelsey had 10 catches in the first half last week against Jacksonville. I think he finished with 15 or 16, which is a record for tight ends in a playoff game. It's rare that you have a team that's as explosive as the Chiefs are with so many weapons where you're going to say the first person you want to take away is a tight end. But Travis Kelsey is that good. And I wonder, you know, do the Bengals, Matt, do they play? I'm just making this up. Do they play three safeties? Do they match him up with Jesse Bates, their best safety all game long? Forget forget a, a linebacker. Maybe you, you have to play some zone. You can't play man up all game. But if they can limit Kelsey, and I don't think they're going to because um, Reed and Biennemi scheme it up for Mahomes and, and Kelsey, and Mahomes finds Kelsey an awful lot. That's the biggest key to the game. If you can limit Travis Kelsey... Everything else is a close second, but that will give you the best chance to win. And now, without further ado, the reason why you're listening to this podcast, or at least for the team, the NFC Championship game, 49ers at Eagles, 3 o'clock on Fox, Philadelphia, depending on where you're looking. Again, a two or a two and a half point favorite. We should have a great championship weekend. What Vegas is telling us is in these two games with these four teams, if you put them on a neutral field, it's a coin flip, right? Three points for home field advantage. I believe it with the Bengals and the Chiefs, especially given the Mahomes injury and the way that the Bengals have played against the Chiefs the past three times. They've won all three. I'm not so sure about this game. I think the I think this line is low. I think this line should maybe be four or four and a half. Philadelphia is the number one seed for a reason. They've looked like the best team in the league for the first 15 weeks of the year. Then Jalen Hurts got hurt with the shoulder, came back against the Giants, and obliterated them. But again, let's not be prisoners of the moment. We're going to break down some stats in previous games, previous losses by both teams in terms of what to look for. So how did we get here? So to begin the playoffs, the San Francisco 49ers throttled Division rival Seattle, 41-23 to in the wildcard round, and then last week hosted and beat the Cowboys, 19-12, in a slugfest, a defensive battle. The Eagles, as the number one seed in the NFC, had the bye, did not play in the wildcard round, and again, obliterated the Giants, 38-7, to last week. 
stats, a lot of similarities here and a lot of somewhat evenness, except for two areas, which we're going to see on the defensive side. But offensively, the Eagles are the number in the regular season. The number three offense in the league, San Francisco five, passing Philadelphia ninth, San Francisco 13th, rushing Philadelphia five, San Francisco eight. And that's really also that's powered by the fact that they have a uh, quarterback who ran for over 700 yards. Points scored, Philadelphia third, San Francisco sixth. So close. And defense, at least this first one, starts out close. Total defense. Yards allowed, San Francisco one, Philadelphia two. Pass defense, Philadelphia first, San Francisco 20th. Rush defense, San Francisco second, Philadelphia 17th. And points allowed, San Francisco first, Philadelphia eighth. Turnover differential, these are two of the top three teams in the league. San Francisco first at plus 13, Philadelphia plus eight. Sacks. Now, the 49er D-line, I guess it's been the reputation they've built up the past couple years since Nick Bosa joined the team. 45 sacks as a team. Last week, Dallas, better than the 49ers. 55 sacks. Only got to Brock Purdy twice, but did apply pressure. Philadelphia, the number one team sacking the quarterback in the NFL at 70. 25 more sacks. Than the 49ers. They are averaging in the regular season a shade over four sacks per game. And they roll deep with good players. Hassan Reddick, who they picked up in free agency, leads their team with 16 sacks. Javon Hargrave, Brandon Graham, and Josh Sweat all have 11. The only team in the league with four players with 10 sacks or more. If you're a defense or defensive line or, or say a D end and a linebacker, if you have two players on your team with 10 sacks or more, consider yourself lucky. This is unbelievable. And they, these four may very well be their pass rush package on downs where their defensive coordinator knows that San Francisco has to throw. And how the 49ers offensive line of Trent Williams, Aaron Banks, Drake Brendel, Spencer Burford or Daniel Brunskill and Mike McGlinchey with help from Kittle or Juszczyk at fullback will be a deciding factor in this game. Now the stars on offense for Philadelphia, quarterback Jalen Hurts, running back Miles Sanders over 1,000 yards. They also have Kenneth Gainwell at running back. A.J. Brown and Devonta Smith at receiver, both went over 1,000 yards. Dallas Goddard at tight end. San Francisco, Brock Purdy at quarterback. Christian McCaffrey and Elijah Mitchell at running back, at receiver, Debo Samuel, Brandon Ayuk, and George Kittle at tight end. I think we all know the Brock Purdy story, obviously, now, right? Seventh round pick, rookie, came in when Jimmy got hurt, won six straight in the regular season, now two in the playoffs, has played clean games. He is now the fifth rookie in NFL history to start a conference championship game, whether it's the AFC or the NFC. The others are Sean King for the Buccaneers in the late, either the late 90s, or early 2000s against the Rams, Ben Roethlisberger for the Steelers, Joe Flacco for the Ravens, and Mark Sanchez for the Jets. All four prior rookies lost. So a win for Brock Purdy and the Niners puts him in the history books. Now let's see, you know, I don't want to dive completely into strength of schedule, but I look back to see 
how many playoff teams each team has played. The Eagles have played four playoff teams six times, and I'll explain what that means. The four teams they've played are the Vikings, the Jaguars, the Giants twice, and actually three times, and the Cowboys twice. So they've actually played four playoff teams seven times. Excuse me. The 49ers have played six playoff teams, a total of seven, eight times. Seattle three times. The Chiefs, where they got obliterated. The Chargers, the Dolphins, the Buccaneers, and the Cowboys. So when you look at who's been tested or who's been tested more, pretty even. Although I will say, if you're, if you're looking at the divisions, the NFC East this year was a much better division than the NFC West. But Philly, outside of the East, they played the AFC South. Jacksonville was good. Colts were bad, gave them problems. Texans were bad, um, gave them problems in the first half. And the Titans weren't that good, and they, they kind of blasted the Titans. Philadelphia, in their three losses, they have lost to three good defenses. Washington, Dallas, and New Orleans. Of those three games, only the Washington game had Jalen Hurts at quarterback. The Dallas game and New Orleans game came late after Jalen injured his shoulder. The, uh, so of those three, you can really only look at the Commanders game and take away some sort of blueprint for how to slow down or beat this Philadelphia team. Washington had a 66-yard total yard advantage, two turnovers advantage over the Eagles, a, tw- a over 20-minute time of possession advantage, and first downs the Commanders led 25-18. to 18. It started with running the ball. Washington ran the ball 49 times for 152 yards and two touchdowns. They limited Jalen Hurts passing to 175 yards, two touchdowns, and one interception. And the Eagles, as a team, ran the ball 20 times for 94 yards and one touchdown. That's the blueprint. The 49ers' defense is better than the Washington Commanders' defense. Can they duplicate the effort? We shall see. Now let's look at San Francisco's losses. Their four losses, none with Brock Purdy, for what that's worth, but their losses came to mobile quarterbacks. Week one, Justin Fields. Now granted, that was in a monsoon. And there wasn't a ton of running, but Fields did run, and the one big back-breaking play was him scrambling behind the line of scrimmage, scrambling to the left, throwing across his body to former 49ers receiver Dante Pettis for a wide-open touchdown. Philadelphia and Jalen Hurts could replicate these types of broken big plays, but it's more the running, the read option and then defending the read option, but also defending the receivers that are behind you in the secondary. But beyond um, Justin Fields, Russell Wilson against the Broncos, that was that ugly Sunday night game. Wilson didn't run too much or scramble until the last drive where they took the lead and won. Marcus Mariota of the Falcons, a 28-14 victory over Atlanta. The Falcons with Mariota, Tyler Algier, um, and Huntley, 
kind of ran all over San Francisco. And Mariota had over 60 yards rushing himself. And they were all legit runs. One of them, I believe he broke the pocket for about 15 yards. And of course, the Chiefs game with Patrick Mahomes. I wouldn't say he's mobile, but he has good pocket awareness and mobility to buy time and extend plays. Keep note, in both games against the Cardinals, the 49ers did not play Kyler Murray in either game. The 49ers, much like many teams or any team, has difficulty with mobile quarterbacks. So I'm curious to see what D'Amico Ryans dials up on defense. How do they get pressure? Do they pressure somewhat, but then do they rush to keep Jalen Hurts in the pocket? Are they disciplined when it comes to a read option? Which means if Jalen Hurts is running a read option, are the defensive ends going to crash and go after the running back? Essentially run right by Jalen Hurts as he runs around them for a first down? Or is it more going to be a... is Because the 49ers defense since 2019, the motto has been all gas, no breaks. Which is great for the most part, against a pocket passer, it's really good. But when you have a quarterback that can fake it to a receiver and pull it down and run, you might want to pump the brakes a little bit more and maybe react to what's going on sometimes. Last year, San Francisco played at Philadelphia with Jalen Hurts at quarterback. San Francisco won that game 17-11. to It was similar in a lot of respects to the last week's playoff game against the Dallas Cowboys. Stat-wise, the 49ers had nine minutes more time of possession. First down, San Francisco 23 to the Eagles 18. There were no turnovers by either team, and total yards were basically even. Rushing, San Francisco ran the ball 38 times for 117 yards and one touchdown. The Eagles... Better, they ran the ball 29 times for 151 yards and one touchdown, and Jalen Hurts by himself, 10 rushes for 82 yards and a touchdown. Keep in mind, this game, now now the personnel has changed slightly. There was no, the 49ers had um, Emmanuel Mosley at cornerback, who's obviously hurt now. They also had other um, corners, but they did not have Traverius Ward, who they do now, Talano Hufunga at safety, has taken a step forward as long as he can play under control. They did not have Christian McCaffrey, but the Eagles did not have A.J. Brown. And he's got, he went over, I think, 14 or 1,500 yards. He was well worth the first round pick that the Eagles traded to the Titans. So questions for the Eagles, and I, and I don't have many. I mean, the Eagles... Last week looked like the team that they were for the entire regular season without Jalen Hurts. With Jalen Hurts at quarterback, the Eagles are 17-1. and Or 16-1. and I know I said that pretty definitively. They've only lost one game. The other two losses came with Gardner Minshew. Can Hurts be a dual threat with his shoulder injury? Now, he was running against the Giants. I mean, they got up, you know, 7-0 quick, 14-0. It was 28-0. The running slowed down a bit in the third quarter or completely. And if you watch the game, you saw that when he pulled it down to run, he slid five yards in front of anybody that was going to tackle him. He did not put himself unnecessarily in harm's way. And can Philadelphia stop the run? Now, they are 
The numbers, a number 17 rush defense, slightly better than the Cowboys, but I can see them taking a similar approach to Dallas where you're going to crowd the line, get eight or nine men within five or seven yards of the line of scrimmage, stack the box and say, Brock Purdy, you're going to beat us. The running game isn't going to beat us. And on the back end, they have corners and safeties between James Bradbury, Darius Slay, Chauncey Gardner-Johnson at safety that they can hold up in coverage if they either blitz more, play more man-to-man, or devote more resources to stopping the run. But for the 49ers, the counter to that is, just like the Dallas game, you you can minimize it. Or if you want to say take it away where there's no big, even say a five-yard run, that's that's a big run. There's a difference between second and five and second and eight. If they're if the Niners are running for two, three yards consistently, stick with it. It's just as much about volume as it is about effectiveness. And again, that 30 number, 30 plus rushes, you know Shanahan is going to want to get to, if not more. The 49ers questions, can they protect Brock Purdy against this pass rush? And I don't, last week's game against the Cowboys, I think Shanahan protected Purdy in different ways. From the pass rush, at least in the second half, um, they didn't ask him to do too much. They wanted to play ground and pound and grind it out. And I said it probably yesterday or last week on the tele- on the podcast, you heard it during the Cowboy game. They weren't as aggressive with Purdy against the Cowboys as they were the previous seven games. Does that change? On the road, Philadelphia is a hostile environment who have despicable fans, at least in the stands. And not not all of them. If there's an Eagle fan listening, let's not go, I'm a good guy or, or, or woman. Yeah, I'm sure you are. By and large, Philadelphia fans are the worst in the NFL. There's a reason why the old stadium, Veterans Stadium, had a jail underneath it. I'm not sure the new stadium is called the Link, Lincoln Financial Field. I don't know if there's a jail underneath it or not, but widely known Philadelphia fans, and especially Eagle fans, they are a tough crowd. Will Brock Purdy, will it strike midnight on Brock Purdy? Will he turn into a pumpkin? And I think anytime you're watching ESPN or NFL Network or reading anything online, I don't know how much of the sample size, what's the sample size that people need to believe that this is who Brock Purdy is. It's eight games. It hasn't been a ton. All I I do know is if this was Trey Lance's first eight games, they would have anointed him the savior. And the next great quarterback, the next great dual threat, what, whatever you want, the next great 49er quarterback, whatever you want to anoint him. And that is because of perception of draft position. The Niners traded up three picks to number three overall two years ago to draft Trey Lance. Brock Purdy was taken as a seventh round pick, the last pick of the draft. So I think the human mind goes to, well, he's the last pick of the draft for a reason. 31 teams passed on him seven times or more if they had more than just seven draft picks. Is is he going to, at some point, play down to his draft status? Probably. He's not going to win every game ever. 
that he's starting. This is the biggest test for him. Aside from last week, last week against the Cowboys was the biggest test. He passed and they won that game without him throwing a touchdown. Do I think they could beat the Eagles without him throwing a touchdown? Possibly. But I would I would sway towards no. I think Brock Purdy needs to be smart, needs to be efficient, but also needs to be a factor. And that doesn't mean 350 yards and three touchdowns. If they get that, they're probably going to win. Or that means that Jalen Hurts, it's just a wild shootout and the defenses didn't show up. But if they can get a Brock game of 250 or 275, a touchdown or two, one or no interceptions, being smart with the football, and of course, a big contribution from the ground game and the defense. And I think there's, Again, Washington laid out the template. This team has experience playing the Eagles. They played them last year, so it's not like they don't that they haven't seen a read option quarterback um, in two years. They saw J- uh, Jalen Hurts last year. They saw Justin Fields this year. They saw Marcus Mariota this year as well. And you could even say like Geno Smith's got some mobility. I mentioned Russell Wilson, Patrick Mahomes. But it's not like they have they they have half their roster of of playing against mobile quarterbacks. Can San Francisco get to 30 plus runs? Like you guys know this by now. It guarantees them nothing but really increases the chances of just like I said with Joe Mixon and the Bengals against the Chiefs, you're slowing down the game. The Eagles are more explosive than the 49ers. They have dynamic more dynamic receivers than the 49ers do. They have a dynamic running back in Miles Sanders. He also went over um, 1,000 yards or 1,200 yards. They have another good running back in Kenneth Gainwell. They have a good tight end in Dallas Goddard. And they have the ultimate X factor in Jalen Hurts. So even though the 49ers, I think, have led the league in scoring since Brock Purdy came aboard, this Eagle offense is completely different than anything that they've seen all year. But they have seen him it and him, Jalen Hurts, in the past two calendar years. I mentioned before that I think the two, two and a half point line is low. A lot of experts and pundits out there are picking the Eagles. Some to cover, a lot of games are close, a one point game, a three point game, nothing more than a touchdown. And I actually saw one person picking the Niners to win 31 to 21. If this game gets to 52 total points, I will be shocked. I think this game should look much more like the Cowboys playoff game and last year's Eagles game, 17 to 11. Maybe it's in the low 20s. But I can see the teams being a little bit more conservative in the beginning, feeling each other out, and then figuring each other out as we get into the second quarter and the second half. All that being said, I think the Eagles win this game 24 to 20. And I've I've picked against the Niners before. Would I feel better if it was in San Francisco? Yes. But I think Philadelphia has the better roster. Not by much, but they do. They have the better quarterback, even at 80% or 70%, whatever he is, because of the legs factor. They can run the ball. They have a better offensive line than the Cowboys. They have a better defensive line than the Cowboys. Their pass defense, uh, number one in the league, They could be run on, but so could Dallas. 
statistically anyway, and it took until the second half for that to happen. The, to use a Philadelphia uh, a Philadelphiaism, they had the Niners to win this game. They have to be like Rocky, Sylvester Stallone. In every movie, he takes a beating, an epic beating, and it's only the th- it's only Rocky three, the second fight against uh, Mr. T, where he actually puts his ar- his arms up to guard and protect his face. Otherwise, every other Rocky movie. His, his arms are down, and he just is getting blasted in the face left and right by Apollo Creed multiple times, by Mr. T, by Ivan Drago, by Tommy Gunn. By... Rocky doesn't believe in, in putting his guard up to box. He would rather tire Mr. T out by using his face as a punching bag, which in the world of movie boxing you have to do, because if, it, if a movie boxing match looks like a real boxing match, it's boring as heck. Because watching boxing, like the, the casual fan can't tell when, when a punch connects or not, or rarely can. They, the Niners have to withstand the, the Eagles' potential offensive onslaught. And it might not be points. It might be yards. It might be field position. It might be the variety of things that the Eagles are going to throw at them. Keep it close. Keep it ugly. Make it ugly. Make it a street fight like Rocky Five, Sylvester Stallone and, and Tommy uh, Gunn behind a bar, you know, fighting, street fighting. Make it that. And then you keep it close, you keep it clean, turnover-wise, then it's anybody's game. Who gets tight in the fourth quarter? Is there a turnover? Is there a fumble or a big play on special teams? You have a great special teams kicker in Robbie Gold, a great punter in Mitch Mitch Wisnowski. Keep it close. But all things being equal, I think the Eagles win 24 to 20. And listen, if that happens, there's only there's one or two games left in the season. If the if the 49ers season ends on Sunday in Philadelphia, how upset is every how upset are we gonna be? Will I will I be yelling at the TV during the game? Yeah. And if it's a game that the Niners give away, will it bother me? Yeah. But I think us as fans, in a weird way, I think we care more about the outcome of these games than these players. Don't get me wrong. Players want a Super Bowl ring. They want to get to the Super Bowl, all of that. And you see players crying after the game, etc. But you also see players right after the game hugging players on the other team, high-fiving, not being poor sports, talking, you know, being friendly, laughing. I think fans take this harder than, than players do sometimes. Everybody that was a 49er fan thought this season was over, not when Trey got hurt, when Jimmy got hurt. We had no idea what Brock Purdy was. Everything that he's given the team and us as fans has been gravy. The Christian McCaffrey trade, that's worked out immensely for both sides. There were questions, was he worth a second, third, and fourth round pick in this draft and a fifth round pick in 2024? The answer is yes. And the Panthers running game, between Deonta Foreman and Chuba Hubbard, picked up with McCaffrey gone. It won for everybody. Regardless of what happens this game or in the Super Bowl, should the Niners be fortunate enough to get, to get there, the 49ers might have found a QB of the future in Brock Purdy. And it's a cheap one for the next at least two years, if not three years. He's making less than a million dollars. And they have a backup in Trey Lance, whose cap hit, I think, is less than 4 or $5 million this year and next year. Then the 49ers would have to make a decision. They are, Jimmy's going to be somewhere else. And 
I thank him for his service, and, and there's more. There'll be more thankings and discussions once the the season is fully over. But Jimmy will be somewhere else. The Trey Lance and Brock Purdy will be the top two quarterbacks on the roster, and we'll see if they keep Josh Johnson or draft somebody else as a number three. But here's the one thing that is going to be unfortunate if it comes to pass, and it would come to pass most prominently this week should they lose against the Eagles. If Brock Purdy struggles and Jalen Hurts excels and shows that dual threat ability and beats the 49ers with a couple big runs or sustains third downs, get, gets first downs with a read option or breaks the pocket and picks up you know, 10, 15, 20 yards, even if, or if Brock Purdy struggles, and again, at some point he's going to struggle, guys. At some point, he's going to throw multiple picks. At some point, he's going to look like a rookie. There were games where Aaron Rodgers this year looked like a rookie. Josh Allen did not look good last week against the Bengals. It is going to happen to every quarterback. Of course, we don't want it to happen in the NFC Championship game or the Super Bowl, but it might. But let's say Purdy plays a clean game, but Jalen Hurts just outplays him and he's the X factor. Both defenses play well. Hard fought game, say it is 24 to 20. But Jalen Hurts is the X factor with his arms and legs. Then I guarantee you the entire narrative this offseason is that's why the 49ers drafted Trey Lance. That's what someone like Trey Lance could bring to the team and versus an opposing defense. It's not just the throwing, it's the running as well. And that's going to be unfortunate. Not like the media or fans are going to look for a scapegoat, but for as good as Brock Purdy's been and all of the signs that fans in San Francisco, and if I'm sure you guys have seen the sign, it says big, then a picture of a chicken, and then Brock, number 13. For those of you who aren't savvy to that, 49er fans have been calling him Big Cock Brock. I don't know why they did the same thing with Nick Mullins, the court, the backup quarterback the past couple years. When he was playing well, he was Big Dick Nick. Now, I don't know, like, me, I don't know, it's San Francisco, it has a large gay population, or these are just guys that are like, hey, Big Dick, like, like that's a, a compliment. Like, I guess it is weird, but for as much love as they've showered on Brock Purdy, I just would feel so bad for him and so bad in general if he catches the blame this game. Or even if he plays well, he catches the blame because he's not Jalen Hurts and he's not Trey Lance who was drafted to be a Jalen Hurts type, a Josh Allen type of player. Remains to be seen and there'll be a lot more discussion in future podcasts. I'm still trying to figure out Whenever the 49ers season ends, we're going to have a recap of that game. Then it's then we'll either look ahead to the Super Bowl or free agency. I'm still trying to figure out how I how I'm holding on to the podcast in the offseason. And I've got some ideas. And I promise you, independent of the outcome, unless Brock Purdy rolls through, wins the Super Bowl, Super Bowl MVP, even then, and we're going to dive into this more, there still may be a QB competition between Purdy and Lance in the offseason, even if it's a fake competition, just for optics, for everybody, even if everyone agrees that Purdy should be the quarterback moving forward, as an organization, as a team that traded those picks, 
they're going to want to they're going to want to show that they still believe in their investment even if they don't but that's a conversation for another day thank you for if you listen to the three-part multi-part podcast Super Bowl prediction, Philadelphia and Cincinnati. But what I can see any permutation of these four teams playing in the Super Bowl, I would not be surprised. And again, the spread for both games is under three. Vegas is telling you we have no idea. It's a coin flip. And if you played on a neutral field, there would be no favorites. So it's Thursday, three more days until Championship Sunday. I hope you all. Enjoy the games as much as as I do. It is the last weekend of multi-football games until September. And then, of course, we have a Super Bowl that we will be breaking down in a large amount of detail, regardless of the outcome of this weekend's games. So enjoy the rest of the week. Everybody stay safe, stay healthy, healthy and happy. And we will talk early next week. Take care.